Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. Welcome back to the Good Fight Radio Show. I am excited for this special edition as we will be interviewing Eric Hernandez, who is the lead apologist for Texas Baptist and works alongside Leighton Flowers. He's done a number of debates online, whether it's about the soul, regarding atheists, skeptics, agnostics. I've seen him all over the place online, and I'm excited for you guys to get to know Eric Hernandez today. So, Eric, thank you so much for joining the Good Fight Radio Show. Hey, it's great to be here. I'm, I'm honored to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, you know what? I want to give a little background of how I initially met you, and I'll, and I'll, I'll share some of that embarrassment uh, with you, because afterwards I had texted Tony. I was like, I feel like an <laughs> idiot, because I I went to an apologetics conference uh, early, last year, you know, pre-COVID and everything, uh, with a number of uh, a couple of my wrestlers and guys that I disciple, and we were down there, and I had seen Eric on a couple of videos previously, and I remember going up to him. We were talking a little bit. He, I, I obviously I have a wrestling background, and Eric said he wrestled a little bit as well in high school. So we started talking. And I started saying, yeah, we have this new radio network that we have, and we have, you know, Frank Turek on it, you know, we'll have a number of guys that are here, um, are on it as well, and I was, like, talking about that, and then I got in the car, and I had his card, and I saw Texas Baptist, and I was like, Leighton Flowers is on the Good Fight Radio Network, and I didn't mention the guy that he works with alongside, uh, <laughs> and I just felt like such a goof, but, but nonetheless, I was excited, I got that card, and then I said, hey, you know, when we get our radio network all running. I'd love to have you on because you got a lot of great insights and things that you can say. So I am excited to have you here today, brother. Thank you. I'm excited for it. All right. Well, you know what? Let's let's get right into it because I, you know, I think it's really interesting your background and I'd love for the audience to hear a little bit not only of your testimony, you know, how you came to Christ, but also how you got involved in apologetics and and you can talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you're doing as well on top of that and and you know feel free to just go as long as you want because I've seen some images online which I was like wow I didn't realize all the stuff that he's doing of you I even I guess sharing with people early in the morning in the Philippines and everything but instead of you know going right into what you're doing there with the Texas Baptist I'd love to know specifically how you got involved with apologetics and I guess the Christian faith as a whole yeah, uh, so um, I, I grew up in church my whole life, and uh, I've always been an inquisitive person. Uh, I remember, um, I, w- I don't remember my exact age, but I remember like the setting, and I was in the backseat of my parents' Suburban. Uh, my feet weren't able to reach the floor, which doesn't say too much because I'm not the tallest guy in the world, So, uh, <laughs> but this was, <laughs> I was probably maybe four or five, and I just remember I, 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 I was looking at the floor and thinking, um, looking at my feet swing, and I I asked my mom, I said, I don't understand the world. And she says, what do you mean? And I said, well, what, what was God doing before he created everything? Where was he? Was he by himself? What was going on? Was it dark? And uh, she was kind of just, you know, like, where is this coming from? But I've always been one to kind of, you know, once I learn something, I start, well, one, I have ADHD and, and my mind runs a million miles a minute, uh, 
some people say jokingly, oh, I have ADHD. Uh, um, when I say it, I'm being serious. I can show you my, my prescription <laughs> medication. But uh, it, it, it has it, – the benefit of this has been like when learning concepts or just theology or philosophy, I start to connect dots pretty quickly. And I found myself doing that even at a young age. Well, um, as I grew older, it kind of got me in trouble. Um, being in youth group, I, I, I got, uh, I wouldn't say reprimanded necessarily, <laughs> but uh, I, I was kind of turned off uh, by a couple of my youth pastors because I would uh, ask questions, and a couple of times I was told to stop asking questions, uh, which troubled me because every week they're telling us to invite a friend next week to church. But here I am thinking to myself, well, if I as a believer don't even feel comfortable asking questions in my own church, why would I invite someone else? Um, so fast forward to freshman year of college, I take my first philosophy class and, um, I, I took it just as an elective, you know, just to, to kind of maybe skip if I, if I wanted to, I thought it'd be something just kind of easy. I thought philosophy was something that you just give your opinion about and make something up and you, you'll get a good grade. And I was good at making stuff up. <coughs> and, in the first week of class, uh, uh, I remember the, the professor talking about something called the burden of proof. Now, to, to rewind a little bit, I remember during one church service, one uh, youth service, I heard my youth pastor say, if anyone ever asked you to prove to them that God exists, all you have to do is to ask them to prove to you that he doesn't exist. And I thought, wow, that's brilliant. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep that. I'm going to put it in my back pocket in case I ever need it you know, for ammunition. Well, first week of, of, of uh, a philosophy class, freshman year of college, first semester, my professor says this first week we're going to talk about something called the burden of proof. And what this is is uh, the burden of proof is a notion that if you make a claim that something's true or that you believe something's true, then you bear the burden and responsibility to provide evidence and a justification for what you believe is true. And then he says as a random example – which I later found out it was not a random example because he was an atheist professor, philosophy professor. <laughs> he said, but as an example, if you're a Christian here today mm-hmm. and you believe that God exists and someone asks you to prove to them that God exists, you cannot change the burden of proof and ask them to prove to you that God doesn't exist because if you're the one making the claim, then you have to bear the burden to provide evidence for your claim. And when he said that, I felt like my house of cards just collapsed. Um, I was like, well, th- there goes that one. But I was really intrigued. Uh, um, what I loved about it was I-, I learned a lot. I was allowed to ask questions. Um, there was a lot of discussion going on. It, it-, it was – unfortunately, I hate to say it this way, but it was different than what I had experienced in, in church settings. So next semester rolls around, and I want to take another philosophy class. <clears throat> I was hooked pretty much by then. And everybody warned me, if you're going to take another class in philosophy, whatever you do, do not take Professor Pena's class. He is an atheist. He's antagonistic. He's condescending. And his aim of the class is pretty much going to be to try to make you lose your faith. And my response to that was, well, where do I sign up? <laughs> uh, not because I, I wanted to lose my faith, but I, I, like I said, I've always been inquisitive. And I knew enough to know that if Christianity were true, I needed to know why. But at the same time, if Christianity were not true, I would still like to know why, and maybe this was a guy for the job. Now, at this point, I had no idea what apologetics was. I was barely learning what philosophy was. And here I'd say uh, it was the pivotal moment in my life, the pivotal class that really changed the direction and 
put me on a path to where I am now was <clears throat> he walks in to classes he normally did, and he sits at the desk. He would sit while he lectured, kind of weird, but, you know, teach their own. And, and he pretended to pull this antidepressant pill out from his pocket. And he says, religion wants us to believe in something like a soul. And, and, and it's because of the soul that you can have hope in an afterlife and seeing your fr- friends and family that have passed away before you. And according to Christianity, the soul is something immaterial. It's not physical. And allegedly, this is where your emotions are, where your sensations, your beliefs, all these things are in your soul, but they're not physical. He says, but pretend I have an antidepressant pill here in the tip of my fingers. He said, if I took this pill, it has the power to change my moods and my emotions and the sensations that, according to Christianity, are allegedly in my soul. But if the soul is not physical, then how can something tiny and physical like a pill have the power to affect the alleged non-physical things that exist in my soul? Because every time we look at the brain, all we see are neurons firing. And every time we look at the, the body, we just see the base elements of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. But no scientist has ever looked under a microscope and found anything like a soul. And he said, how is that? How do, how do we explain that? And he said, well, it's simple. Here, the answer is very simple. The, the, the answer is that there is no soul. There is no God. There is no heaven. There is no hell. There is no afterlife. We're just a physical brain and body, and when we die, that's it. That's the end. And we need to learn to live with this fact and get on with our lives and stop believing in these foolish fairy tales. And after that, I was pretty much like class dismissed. Now, I, I sat there, and as a freshman in college, not only had I never met anyone that didn't believe in the soul, I had never heard an objection raised against it. And I sat there in in quite a predicament because I knew that Paul said that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christianity is false, essentially. Um, So really, Christianity hinges on the historical fact that God rose Jesus from the dead. However, given what he just said, I also knew that if there is no soul, then I would argue by default there can be no resurrection, and thus if there's no soul, then by the same line of reasoning, Christianity would be false. So here was something that for the first time I had heard that if this, what my professor was saying is true, then this would be sufficient to prove Christianity was false. Um, Because up until that point, I had heard a lot of complaints. Uh, I do a lot with atheists, as you alluded to, um, (laughs) uh, agnostic skeptics, basically daily. Uh, and, and most of the time what I hear are complaints, you know, well, I don't believe in God because I don't know, Christians are hypocrites or I don't like what happened in the old Testament, but, but these don't amount to objections. In other words, Christianity could still be true. Even if you don't like something that happened, uh, that's not an objection against Christianity. But here for the first time, I hear an argument that if true, would prove that Christianity was false. So I, I, I was in a dilemma to where I can, on the one hand, I can ignore this and brush it under the rug and just kind of keep going with my life being a Christian, or I could roll up my sleeves and get my hands metaphysically dirty, if you will, and look into these issues. And I did the latter. Um, and that's when I, I that's when I began to learn more about philosophy, philosophy of mind, learned about guys like William Lane Craig, and then J.P. Moreland, who is a lifesaver. He's an expert in the field of what's known as philosophy of mind, which is a study of consciousness and the soul. And, and to shorten the story, <clears throat> um, long story short, five years later, I was actually invited to do a one-on-one debate with my former professor on the <laughs> existence of God at a church that I wasn't even attending. 
um, and again, just trying to keep the story short here, um, what was interesting there is he had never done a public debate, neither had I, uh, and the church, the, the youth pastor of the church was the one putting it together, and the church didn't think a lot of people would show up. So rather than put us in the sanctuary, they put us in the gym, and they pulled out about 200 chairs. Well, I get there about an hour early just to kind of pray and prepare in the back room, and about 15 minutes before it starts, I peek my head out the door just to see who showed up out of curiosity. And not only were those 200 chairs full, they had pulled out 200 more chairs, and those were full. There were people standing along the back of the church in the gym and along the walls of the gym, and there were people still walking in. And including online and in person, there were probably five to 600, if not more, people who were in attendance uh, at that debate. And there were more atheists and Christians at church that night because of how influential this uh, a professor was. Yeah, sometime after the debate, I went up to him, kind of tug in cheek, and I, and I shook his hand, and I said, I know you're an atheist, so I don't know how you're going to take this, but I just want to say, I, I just want to thank you for allowing God to use you the way he did in my life, because if it weren't for you, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, that, and it really is. I mean, that really was, was the, the thing that kind of set me um, – to where I am now, basically. Well, wow! I, I mean, what a what a fantastic story! I mean, really, that is that is amazing. And you know what? Since let's get right into it. Since we got we got you here talking about the soul and this this question that was raised to you, this you know hardcore physicalism, right? Uh, mm-hmm. How how would you respond to that today, or how did you respond to that into the debate? So it, it didn't come up too much in the debate, given that the topic was uh, specifically on does God exist. Mm, okay. And at that time, I was still learning myself, although we did we did briefly touch on it. Interestingly, he, he won't debate me again, uh, and I'll leave that to you as to his motives. <laughs> uh, I won't try to psychoanalyze him here. Uh, but, but I found it really interesting that you have this professor who's you know, every semester beats up on students and does one debate and then doesn't do another one after that. Um, but – Basically, there's a lot to say and unpack, but again, to try and keep it just to kind of the gist to give people an idea, it's important that when you're dealing with objections and and arguments such as these, it's important to understand the underlining presuppositions behind the question. So so let's unpack a little bit what he was saying uh, during that freshman year of class. Notice that he was, his argument was basically that if it, there was an underlying assumption that if the soul did exist and was physical, then he thought apparently nothing should be able to affect it that's physical. Uh, and that if something physical can affect things like my thoughts and beliefs, then those things must be physical as well. However, that's not – not only is that a non sequitur, meaning that's not – it doesn't follow from that argument – it doesn't prove that there's no soul. So here, here's, here's a way to think about it, uh, to be kind of a, a quick, rough and ready way to think about it. Suppose I am the world's greatest guitar player or piano player, which I'm not, um, but let's take a piano. Suppose I, I'm playing a piano, and if you ask me, what is the note C? And I say, well, the note C is when I press these three keys here with this hand and these keys with this hand together, that's the note C. But... Of course, that's technically that's not the note C. That may be what causes the sound of the note C, but pressing keys on a piano in and of themselves are not the note C. If anything, I'm showing you that there is a cause and effect relationship between an instrument and the music. 
Um, in the same way, if the soul exists, which of course I would argue that it does, then my brain would be much like a guitar or piano uh, uh, relative to musician. My brain would be like the instrument my soul uses while I'm embodied. So take a piano. If you affect or detune my guitar, you're going to affect the way I play the music. Because a lot of times what I'll hear, similar to what my professor was saying, was that you know, you have things like Alzheimer's or brain damage where people can lose their memory or, or even uh, uh, appear to be totally different people with different personalities. But that's no different than saying if I detune a guitar, it's going to affect the way the music's played or it's going to make it sound like a totally different song. But it doesn't follow from the fact that detuning a guitar changes the tune or pitch. It doesn't follow from that that therefore – I am a guitar or that the music and the notes of the song are inside the guitar itself. It's not as, it's not as if I, if I were to break open a guitar, the note C would fall out. You know, your, <laughs> your worship leader doesn't stand on stage right before the music starts and says, Oh guys, time out. Turns out the note C is not in my guitar. I think it fell out in the trunk of my car on my way to church. Let me go run and grab that bad boy real quick. <laughs> uh, it, it doesn't make sense to say, but clearly there's a cause and effect correlation relationship there. But it doesn't mean it's the same thing. So the first issue there is that he's assuming that cause and effect is sufficient to establish what's called in philosophy identity, showing that two things are the same thing. Um, another flaw in what he was saying and trying to argue was that he said something like, you know, when we look at the brain and we look in the body, we don't find the soul. You know, it's all physical. And <laughs> I laugh now because of how bad of an argument that is and, and really – Shame on him for being a, a philosopher and saying something silly like that. Here's why. Here's why that is. Suppose your uh, your neighbor approaches you and says, you know, he looks really distraught, and he says, "Hey, there's you're going to think I'm crazy, but there's an invisible guy in my house." And let's say you, being a, a fairly reasonable, skeptical person, says, "Well, I don't believe you," and he says, "No, I, I'm telling you, there's an invisible man in my house." And you say, okay, let me go investigate. So you go investigate. You come back an hour later, and you're visibly upset. And you look at your neighbor and, and, and say, you just made me waste an hour of my time because I now know that you're lying. And he says, wait, wait why do you think I'm lying? And here's your response. You say, because I just investigated your house for an hour, and I looked everywhere, and not once did I ever see the invisible man. I looked under the bed. I looked in the closet. I looked in the bathroom. And never did I ever see this invisible person. And, of course, your neighbor is going to look at you pretty confused and say, well, of course, you're not going to see him. He's invisible. <laughs> now, this doesn't prove that there is an invisible man in his house. But what this does show us is that if you're going to disprove the existence of something invisible, you cannot appeal to visibility to try and investigate something that, by definition, cannot be visible in the same way. While science is a wonderful, great tool for studying the physical world, it is by definition a discipline that is limited to studying the physical natural world. But the soul, if it exists, is a non-physical, supernatural thing, and thus to try and use science to, to investigate something like the existence of the soul would be like trying to use a ruler to measure your weight. It is simply the wrong tool for the assessment. So there's lots more to unpack there, uh, but I'll give one more. Now, here's – when I give a case for the soul, I, I, there are two things that I uh, aim to demonstrate, which, which I've done, and you can even see debates on my YouTube channel, shameless plug there, um, just youtube.com slash Eric Hernandez. And 
<clears throat> one of the uh, there's two points I set out to establish. One is that consciousness is not physical, and the second point is that I am more than a brain and body. I am a soul. Um, I'll I'll let you take it as deep as you want to go, but just to touch on that first thing, consciousness is not physical. In philosophy, there's something known as Leibniz's law of identity, which is it, which is a simple principle that basically says if some A is the same thing as some B, if they're identical, which as I said earlier means literally the same thing, then whatever's true of A is going to be true of B. Uh, take for example Eric Hernandez and the guest on your show. Uh, if Eric Hernandez is identical to, that is the same person as the, your guest on your show today, then whatever's true of Eric Hernandez is true of your guest because I'm really just talking about one person and using mm. two different titles to refer to that person. So whatever's true of one is going to be true of the other. But if I can find at least one thing true of one that's not true of the other, then it's not. Then they're not the same thing or the same person because maybe I'm I'm listening to a different uh, um, a different show that you guys did in the past, e even though I'm listening to it today. Um, one more quick example. Suppose you have two bottles of clear fluids, and you want to know, ask yourself, are they the same substance? Now, you see that they're both clear and they're both liquid, so you think maybe they are the same substance. One bottle has the label water, and let's say on the other bottle, the, let's say the label is ripped off. Uh, uh, but you know, you're, you're thinking, well, maybe they're the same substance. But then you, you see the, the bottle that has the label ripped off, and you look at the bottom of it, and it says caution flammable. And you think, ah, well, I know that water's not flammable, which means even if I don't know what this other bottle, what, whatever this chemical is, even if I don't know what it is, at the very least, I know they can't be the same substance because they have different properties. Okay, with that in mind, <clears throat> if there is no soul, then consciousness, whatever it is, is going to have to be something identical or reducible to something physical like the brain. And given what we just learned about the law of identity, if A is the same thing as B, then whatever is true of A is going to have to be true of B because we're just talking about one thing but using two different names. However, we know that that is easily demonstrable to show that that's not the case. And I'll give you just three examples. Take any state of my mind and take any state of my brain. Take uh, – uh, when, when you have a thought, your brain – there are neurons that fire in your brain. So take the state of a mind like a thought and a brain state like neurons firing. Now, my thoughts can have the property of being true or false, but neurons firing aren't true or false. It doesn't even make sense to, to ask, are these sets of neurons here true or are these neurons false? <laughs> um, let's do another one. My, my brain can weigh three pounds. My brain can be in a state that weighs three pounds, but the thought that I'm talking to you right now doesn't weigh three pounds. And while we may be having heavy thoughts right now, we're not going to go by a neck brace once the show's over, right? <laughs> my brain can be in a state that is seven inches long, but the smell of a rose or the taste of a banana is not seven inches long. And, and while I can give many more examples, the point is simple and clear that if all the properties of my mind are not physical and all the properties of my brain are physical, then it follows that if consciousness exists, it cannot be physical and thus, if the atheist is going to be a naturalist or physicalist and not believe in anything immaterial, then he's going to have to say that consciousness doesn't exist, given that we know that consciousness demonstrably is not physical, which then leaves the atheist in, in an ironic position to essentially have to say that, uh, that he's going to have to deny the existence of consciousness. But if you deny the existence of consciousness, then you're basically going to hold the belief 
that beliefs don't exist because a belief is a state of consciousness. So denying consciousness is essentially saying, I believe that there are no beliefs or I think that there are no thoughts, right? So I, I, I like to tell the atheist, you know, if you're conscious and if you have consciously come to the conclusion that atheism is true, then you actually shouldn't be an atheist because on atheism, on atheism, if everything's just physical, then consciousness wouldn't exist. So if you've consciously become an atheist, then you should equally consciously know that atheism can't be true. <laughs> hey, man. And, you know, I, I'm really enjoying this because one of the reasons we bring guests like Eric on are because, guess what? There are plenty of people, parents who listen and also younger people who listen to these shows and we want you guys to say, hey, I want some more ammo. I want some more help when it comes to this. And Eric is literally describing to you what happened to him at a college campus and how that was used for the glory of God. But there are plenty of parents whose kids will hear this. And, and the first time you hear a matter, the first time it's brought, it seems right until someone comes up and examines it. So that's what Eric's simply doing mm -hmm. here. And I want you guys to see where, and I know he gave a shameless plug, but I was already planning one because I want you guys to know that erichernandezministries.com, you guys can go and check him out there. You can find him on Facebook. It's simply Eric Hernandez Ministries, easy enough. And once again, as he already said, youtube.com slash Eric Hernandez. And if you just simply search on YouTube and type in Eric Hernandez, he's typically the guy right there, uh, suavely dressed uh, in the uh, with his nice hairdo <laughs> and, and, and beard going on there uh, on, his, um, on his YouTube channel. So you can find him. And also he's on EHM underscore apologetics. Did I get that right for Twitter? Yeah. And I, and I want you guys to check these things out because these are great resources. I was telling him before the show that uh, one of the brothers in Christ, he's actually been on one of the shows as well, Travis Key, he always sends me, hey, check out the last review that Eric just did on a, on a debate. And uh, I will say... <laughs> not in a not in a bad way whatsoever. You are, I guess, less congenial, we can say, than Leighton when it comes to dealing with some of these issues. Which uh, that that I actually can uh, I can get behind. Sometimes it's good to uh, answer them accordingly. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show, brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.